Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, July the 9th, 2018. This is episode 2246 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, it is a listener feedback show. This is where you send emails to me. You send those emails to jack at com, And no matter what's in the subject line, you make sure you include the acronym TSPC. Of course, that stands for the Survival Podcast, TSPC. The way I will know it's show-related, best thing to do is all caps, TSPC, in a space, and then whatever the heck the, the, the subject needs to be. And that way, if the span monster goes and eats it, eventually I'll get my lazy butt around to going uh, to the spam folder, typing in TSPC, and most likely pull it out and find it. Any email that comes to me that way, I will read. They certainly won't all get on the show. It's not logistically possible. I think if I did a show like this five days a week and uh, attempted to get all of the emails on the show, there'd be no way that would ever happen. Uh, we do one a week, so if you follow procedure, you're more likely to be one that gets on the air. Got some good stuff for you today. How about why the idea that compulsory military service is good for liberty is to be bluntly stupid? Uh, I mean, generally, I don't take people's ideas and just say, that's stupid. But in this case, it's not only stupid, it's idiotic, too. I'll, I'll talk about that for a bit in the beginning of today's show. Uh, I didn't even know this was going on, but there's some big to-do over the fact that the United Nations was supposed to be issuing this suggestion uh, throughout the world to women that the best thing that they could ever do for their baby is to breastfeed them, and now they're backing off of that and yielding to... Uh, forces that want to kind of promote you should be giving your baby formula out of a can. I'm going to tell you why that's a perfect case for libertarianism and why if you care what the U.N. says, well, you're part of the problem. I have a question on what supplements I take. The list is actually pretty short. I'll give you some uh, specific products, too, as, as well. And I'll ask you guys if you're interested in maybe uh, me doing a whole item of the day series on the stuff that I actually use. Um, and I'll also talk about what I change up and what I do uh, as far as you know, when I get sick, when I'm dealing with an illness or something like that to kind of boost things. Uh, I have a question on how to protect your city, town, state, slashes in between each one of those three from transplants. You know what they say. Well, all these people are coming here from California and screwing things up and making it like California. They left California because they hate California. Now they want Texas to be like California. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you the answer to that. It, it's really simple uh, in, in principle. It's difficult in practice. And the main reason it's difficult in practice is people really don't want to do it because they want their own ability to have power over others by, by through the use of force by proxy. Some of you know right where I'm going with that. Uh, next up, I have a follow-up to a question about planning on a steep slope. It was a comment in the blog. I just thought it was worth reading. We won't spend much time on it. But I had a question last week on, on planning on a really long, though not very high, very steep slope, like 60, 70-degree angle uh, to make it useful. I thought this was a great comment, an example of one member helping another member and kind of doing a little bit of an assist to me. So I'm going to read that to you. Uh, I have a question on exactly how do calories fit in the equation when it comes to a weight loss regime with a paleo, a primal, a low-carb restricted, anything like that diet. 
Uh, and what I really mean when I say you don't really have to count calories, that's a big it depends there. And it really, not for most people, but it depends, and the it depends is pretty big too. Uh, next up, how and why companies are addressing the student loan crisis and what it really means. And then I have a question as far as, that's really a comment and my thoughts on what we learn about the free market from all of these public schools now doing online education for people that want to homeschool, but they still want to keep the kids in the state's educational doctrine. We'll have all of that and more in just a bit in just a second. Before we get to your feedback for me today, let's go ahead and talk about our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one, is RidgeWallet.com. I, I have become a huge fan of the Ridge Wallet. I like all their products, by the way. I just took their, uh, their, their kind of urban backpack on my vacation to Florida. It was fantastic uh, as, as a, you know, a, a briefcase backpack, so to say. I'm actually not one of those guys that really wants to go walking around town with a backpack on my back. Of course... I'm not kind of that urban commuter type that I think they're after there. But when I was uh, when I was working at an office, I was bigger on the kind of the tactical briefcase type thing. Uh, but again, I mean, I got out of my car, I went to the elevator, I went upstairs, and went to my office. And now all that all that pack did was just take my laptop and my other assorted stuff, you know, from the uh, from the house to the office and back. I think if I had any kind of a, a daily commute that involved a lot more moving around. Uh, I would have used something like a backpack. Because I'll tell you where I've always used it, at airports. At airports. Having your two hands free and being able to take all your crap with you is pretty nice. Their backpack is fantastic for that. What I really like about it is the way it protects your laptop. Uh, it is, it, it, I mean, you could, I'm not advising this, but you know, if you threw your laptop across the room, wherever it landed, it probably, if you had it strapped in there right, would be okay. Again, I'm not advising, I'm just saying, man, that's, that's kind of the way I look at the way they have that uh, thing built. They also have a built-in uh, charging cable into it where you can take their charging pack or one of your own, pop it in there, and then you have a little charge dongle hanging out of your backpack. That was really nice, too. I did take the charger they sent me on, on that vacation as well and uh, used it extensively. Um, in addition to all that, of course, they're known as Ridge Wallet because of the Ridge Wallet. I've got my Ridge Wallet in my hand right here. It's just about the exact size of a credit card. And that's what it's mainly designed to do is hold your cards, a bit of cash, and things like that. Since I've switched to it, um, I could not be happier uh, with this form of a wallet. Uh, and also the added you know, ID theft protection is great, too. Check them out today at RidgeWallet.com. And remember, if you're going to pick some of this stuff up, we have a discount for you if you're a member of the MSB. Next up today, our other you know, added sponsor this year, ButcherBox. Um, man, I love ButcherBox. I almost said Butcher Box, didn't I? I love Butcher Box, guys. I'll tell you what. We uh, we just had Nick Ferguson here, and he hung out with us last week for a couple of evenings. And what I made for dinner was a, a, a grass-fed beef tri-tip and a pastured pork roast, and they were both fantastic. One thing I know, when I have guests coming over, and I'm going to cook for them. If I pull stuff from ButcherBox out of the freezer and cook for them, I'm going to get compliments on the quality of the meat. I mean, it's the truth is with meat, more, more than just about anything, I think, the quality shows through in the flavor in the final cook. Like, you can tell good meat from poor quality meat really easily. And you're going to get the best quality meat. It's like having a professional meat shopper that goes out and says, I'm going to get you the best, you know, ribeyes or New York strips or whatever else it is that you're looking for this time around. But that, that professional shopper ships them right to your door. 
uh, with really environmentally friendly packaging as well, little peanut things that are in there to keep everything from defrosting, uh, those, those go right in your compost pile dissolving in nothing. I really like what ButcherBox is doing. They're giving a lot of producers of this high-quality product a way to get their product to market. Uh, they're serving people that otherwise would not be able to get this type of quality of meat where they are. So check them out today at ButcherBox.com. Remember, they do have a discount that you can use for free bacon for life uh, if, if you're a member of the MSB. All right, guys. So with that, uh, before we get into the main topic today, I want to just say real quick a couple words about the uh, Survival Podcast 10-Year Anniversary Party. I opened that to 100 people. The first 50 coming for free and the second 50 having to pay basically their cost of food. Uh We, we opened it this weekend. I think I got like 64 or 67. One of those numbers is in my head as being how many people uh, signed up. It was less than I expected. I'm going to let this stay open uh, until probably Wednesday, and I'm going to close it. So we have a final count that I can give the, the restaurant on this. But if you'd like to come, you can come. You know, I'm not going to explain the whole thing again, but we're celebrating... Ten years of the TSP. It's going to be August 11th at a place called Meso Maya in downtown Fort Worth. Saturday evening from 6 to 9. It's going to be a fun time with a lot of great people. And to, to, to come, all you got to do is go log into your MSB account. There's a great big, giant, bold link at the top. Click that link, fill out the form, and RSVP for me. That's all you got to do. And uh, looking forward to seeing a lot of people there. I screwed up on Saturday. I set the server to automate, or the, 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 the FTP program to automatically overwrite the file uh, at 9 a.m. So I didn't worry about it. And we actually slept in Saturday for once. And I got up like at 9.40 and it wasn't there. People were asking about it. And I'm like, oh, crap. And it, apparently the server's time and my time are not, you know, I'm central time and the server that I used for this was not on central time for some reason, and it didn't publish when it was supposed to. So I manually did it, and then the registration just started pouring in. So if you were sitting there hitting F5 over and over again for 40 minutes, I'm sorry. Uh, if you want to come and you didn't sign up, you still can. I'm going to give you till Wednesday close of business to sign up. All right. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, the main topic of today's show, which is your feedback for me. This first segment is really not direct feedback, like, I do get emails about this subject once in a while, and it generally is pro this subject, uh, not always. But for some reason, it's probably the ongoing war between the left and the right because Trump. Uh, what I'm seeing on social media right now is a massive number of people from the right professing to be the side of liberty saying that what we need in America is some form of compulsory military service. You know, every young person, when they hit 18, has to do two years. You know, maybe between the ages of 18 and 22, you have to do two years of military service. And uh, this is supposed to, to uh, create uh, more liberty in our country. It's supposed to be good for the nation, for a freedom-loving people to have compulsory military service. And as I said, this idea is just stupid. Now, playing devil's advocate for a second... You can make a case, I don't know that I'd agree with it, but you can make a case that if we had some form of compulsory service in service to your nation, and maybe it doesn't have to be military then, but if we had some mandatory service for our people as they come of age to young adulthood, 
where they serve something larger than themselves, that it may be beneficial to society as a whole. Again, I'm not sure I agree with it, but I think you can make a case for that. Compulsory military service is basically the draft all the time. And I think to understand how dumb an idea this is, especially... Not, it's one thing, that, again, I'm back to, it's one thing to say it might be good for society. Because there's things that could be good for society that are still wrong. Okay? Um, but to say it's good for freedom and liberty is dumb. And to understand that we should define what slavery is. So slavery is when you take a person who has committed no crime, who has caused no harm to anybody, Whose, whose mistake is existing, and you require their presence and their labor against their will through the use of force. That's slavery. And anybody that says it isn't is in denial of reality. I, was, I mean, I am a big fan of the truth, no matter where it comes from, even when it comes from a Democrat. And Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, and I quote, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. The fact is, when you require someone's presence and labor against their will, and it's not for punishment for a crime that has a victim, okay, then that is a form of slavery. And then there, when we look at slavery throughout history and stop trying to change it into something it's not and justify it here, and it was bad there, but it was okay here, and it was the best they could do, and just stop the stupidity, And say, well, what are the three primary forms of slavery in history? We have classical slavery. Classical slavery, you could end up a slave by any number of means, captured as an enemy in the military, failure to pay debts, etc. But classic slavery through the majority of history allowed for the slave to purchase their freedom. And the master could not deny that opportunity. He might have a say-so in how much it is. But society in general had a rule and said, this person, if they extend this amount of uh, compensation to their master, can become a freeman. And if someone wants to come and purchase that person's freedom, they can do so. Okay, Still wrong, still evil, but that's what it was. And the majority of slavery throughout the history of mankind has been that slavery. That's why I call it classic slavery. The other one is what's known as indentured slavery. Now, if people want to change it, make it nicer, call it indentured servitude. Uh, state's pretty big on changing that name because if you call it slavery, which is what it is, well, then you know, well, um, shit. Uh, boy, this point Jack's going to make in a second gets a lot stronger. So we'll just tell all the little kiddies in school it's called indentured servitude. And servitude and slavery are different even though they're the same. So indentured servitude was for a time. And this could be for a variety of reasons, because your dad sold you into it, because you owed money you couldn't pay, because you were a captured enemy, and that was the decree of the king or the emperor, whoever was in charge, that these particular captives would go into an indentured servitude period, a slavery for a time versus in perpetuity, or what have you. There were religious groups that believed that this type of slavery was acceptable. And by the way, they called it slavery. It was slavery for a time. This, this person will be this other individual's servant against their will, with the threat of violence, at the point of a spear or a gun, etc., depending on the time, for this period of time. At the end of this period of time, so long as the contract has been upheld, they will be set free. 
Okay? That is indentured servitude, a.k.a. temporary slavery. Now, the exception to indentured servitude, uh, or I don't actually think it becomes to the full extent slavery, is when it was willingly entered into by the individual in question. If an adult, whatever society had defined an adult and treated an adult like at that time, said, I am willing to enter this contract with you legally for five years in return for X, then I think that still, I guess I'd call it slavery light. All right? That's going to be important here in a second. Then the, the, the last form of slavery is what you call permanent slavery or in perpetuity. That's where if I own you, I own you for good. I own you, I own your children, I own your children's children. Unless I choose to let them go, you get no say-so, no one else gets no say-so. You are completely 100% wholly in perpetuity my property. Now I think if we actually sit and look at this, making an exception for an adult voluntary enters the contract and saying, I don't know how I feel about this, but it's not the same as the other ones. But any instance where someone is taken against their will and forced to be at a place and do things against their will, and their punishment for not doing so is being beaten, imprisoned, or killed, we have a form of slavery, either for a time or in perpetuity, and it's wrong, and it's inherently evil. Again, I'm making an exception. So those, you know, somebody, you know, beat the hell out of somebody, put them near death and stole all their stuff, we put them in jail, you want to call that slavery? I know, I call that being a prisoner. Because you did something wrong to get there. Got it? With a clear victim. Could you say some of our current prisoners in jail and prisons are slaves? I think you can make that case. Not important here. Remember we're on the compulsory military service? Okay, so if you tell me that i got to go do shit I don't want to do in a place I don't want to be for two years because I exist here, that's slavery. It's indentured slavery for a period of two years. All right. So the draft is slavery. Here's why in many instances... The draft or compulsory military service is worse than, let's say, two years or the equivalent period of time of classic slavery or indentured slavery. Well, what are you going to do if I become your slave? What would you do? Let's say all of a sudden you have Jack Spirico as your slave. You might make me give you advice. Uh, but, but seriously, if I wasn't the Jack Spirico you know... And we were in a time where you could have a slave and someone showed up at your door and said, hey, this dude is now your slave. You got, you can do whatever you want with him for the next two years. What you're probably going to do is say, well, take the garbage out, tend my garden, look after my kids. Uh, all this hard work I need done around here, I don't want to do. You're going to do that. You're going to work me hard, but you're not going to work me hard enough to kill me because then I'm no value to you anymore. And, you're, and that's what's going to happen. So basically you're going to use me for work you don't want to do or you can't do or you don't have time to do. But what you're not going to do is say, here's a gun, go kill somebody. Well, when you say you want uh, mandatory military service, what you're saying is you want a person who has no desire to be part of this, to be forced at the point of gun and the threat of violence to go to a place to do things and to potentially be told, you must go kill these other people. Against their will. And their punishment for refusing to do so goes anywhere from imprisonment under our current legal system to capital punishment, i.e. execution. Because, yes, under the circumstances that you're deployed to an area, given an order to fire on people in active combat and you refuse it, it can be considered treason. It can be considered treason under fire and you can be executed for it. 
I'm not saying it happens a lot, but when you say you want anything to be mandatory under the state, you're saying you want the threat of violence at the point of a gun by the state to force this behavior. And in this case, the behavior you want is being trained and possibly required to kill another human being. And you think this is good for liberty? Are you effing stupid? I mean, if that is your case, are you effing stupid? And if I'm offending you right now, that may be because you're stupid. I don't know. I mean, sometimes stupid people get offended when you tell them you're stupid. Again, I'm not saying you can't make the case that, that a mandatory service might not actually be good for society. But it ain't good for liberty. That's not You can't use temporary slavery to further the cause of liberty. This is nonsensical. I, I, I talked about this on Facebook today, and I put up a, 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 a meme of a quote by Ron Paul, a verified quote by Ron Paul. Let me read it to you right now. Yeah, Here, here you go. This is from Ron Paul, one, one of the greatest statesmen that, that's existed in our lifetimes, in my opinion. Justifying conscription to promote the cause of liberty is one of the most bizarre notions ever contrived by man. For servitude with the risk of death and serious injury as a price to live free makes no sense. Indeed, Dr. Paul is correct. Um, my take is as accurate as Dr. Paul is on this. What really makes it even worse is, again, you're forcing me to join an entity where I may be required to take another person's life And you're making me do that against my will at the threat of my own life or my own freedom in the name of freedom. And I say this as a guy that joined the Army in 1989 and served until 1993 and is quite proud of my military service. Unlike many that become libertarians, anarchists, agorists, etc., I'm not ashamed of my military service. I think it is a big part of the man I became today. And if I were 17 years old like I was the day I put my hand up and swore my oath and had the same life ahead of me I did, I'd do it again. But I want people that do that to make that decision for themselves. And just as I don't want anybody to force you at the point of a gun to live my life the way that I live it today, I sure as hell don't want anybody to use a gun and force to force you to live a life the way that I did then either. So again, I think if you think... That uh, <laughs> that forced conscription, i.e. armed slavery, uh, is good for freedom. You, you're just making a stupid argument. And I really, you know, I, I'll use that word a lot of times when people do stupid stuff. But when it comes down to an issue, I, I generally do not single out the other side in an issue as being stupid. But sometimes, in the words of Forrest Gump, stupid is, as stupid does. And let's move on, speaking of stupid. So, I don't even know the whole story here, and I don't really care. But I'm going to give you the synopsis that I picked up on this morning in social media. And uh, I, I don't need to know any more than this, neither do you. Apparently, there was some kind of UN recommendation directive or something that was going to come out across the whole wide world and inform mothers of something that mothers have known since before we had the word mother, because we didn't have human language yet, when we were just proto-humans, we knew this, that babies do really well when they're fed breast milk. Yeah, that, that that's probably the best thing you can do for your baby is breastfeed. And, you know, if you are in the, the business of selling baby formula, well, 
this isn't really good for you. So apparently, led by the U.S., there's some kind of rebellion in this, and they're going to soften that recommendation, whatever the hell that means, and basically make a recommendation that people feed formula, because that's good for the bottom line. And, and a lot of people are upset about this. And and I use the F word in, in my text. I'm not going to hear. I'm just going to say F. Uh, but this is how I feel about it. If you are if you are making decisions on what to feed your child based on what the UN says, you are part of the problem. If if you give a square root of F all, right? If you give the square root of F all about what the UN says you should feed your child, what you should feed your baby, you are part of the problem. Why are you listening to the UN at all? Period. And, and, and the people who were most upset about this would say all these things that need to be different, all these things we should do, and the people who were most upset were not the ones saying, well, we should really stop funding the UN. Maybe we should just get rid of the UN. Or maybe the UN should exist only for its proposed purpose, which is to prevent people from going to war when they don't have to. And we should stop spending billions and billions of dollars of stolen money we call taxes to fund 70% of the UN's activities. You know, the people that were like... We need to change this, and they need to do this, and we need to... None of them understood what they were actually doing is making a perfect case, better than I could, for the abolition of the state. If nothing else, they were making a case at least for a minarchist society, i.e. classical libertarianism. Because all of their objections about how these giant corporations were doing this evil And if you try to explain to them what they're going to say is, but if we didn't have government, oh, oh, these giant corporations would just take over everything. <laughs> they're using the apparatus of the state in front of you, and you're defending the state. The most powerful entities in the world today are corporations, but they are powerful not because they're corporations, not because they have lots of money. They're powerful because they have the tool of the state to use to further their agendas. Why should we be looking to any state organization, whether it be a global state organization like the United Nations, a, 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 a national state like the United States of America, Canada, Mexico, Germany, Russia, etc., a state level or provincial level, like let's say Quebec if you're a Canadian, or Texas if you're an American, etc. Um, a, a, a county or city level state entity, like for me that would be Tarrant County or Fort Worth City. Why would we look to any of those organizations to tell us what we should feed our children? And the fact that there's people right now trying to figure out how to answer that question with anything other than, well, we should not, is the best case I could ever make for libertarianism, period. There is no way that a person whose job is to be paid lots of money to travel, and, and, and most of these guys have sex with high-paid high call girls at our expense in our hotels in New York, should have a say in what you feed your child at eight months, 18 months, or 18 years. It's not their business. They shouldn't be setting global policy for anything. Do you know what you have when you have an organization setting global policies? You have a form of global governance. 
I mean, even if we're going to have it, America, yeah, America, nationalism, America, exceptionalism, America, even if you're going to have that, well, you can't have that and have the United Nations telling the United States what they should be doing inside their own borders. And this is the part the right has a hard time understanding. You can't have that using the UN as a proxy for the United States to tell other nations what they should be doing within their borders. If our borders are to be sacred and what we do as our own country is to be left alone, then so are theirs. See how that works? Really simple. But the fact that there's even a concern about what the United Nations says you should feed your baby is the best case for being a minarchist, libertarian, all the way to a full-on anarcho-capitalist that I could ever come up with. And the people that were most concerned about it, doing the most bitching about it, were making the best case I ever heard for the same thing. Didn't know they were doing it. Absolutely convinced they're not doing it. Tell you they're not doing it. Tell you how bad corporations would be if not for the state, but have no answer when you say, well, if the state wasn't there so that that corporation could use it to control how their competitors compete with them, how would they possibly be able to exert this much control? And you can play as much Jeopardy music as you want, and all you're going to get is a confused look or an answer that goes back and repeats the same thing they already said. You're never going to get an actual answer. You'll probably hear something about Carnegie uh, and Henry Ford and, and the, the, the monopolies of the 1800s as though the state wasn't used to uh, create those monopolies. They, they, they'll probably say Henry Ford even though you could never make the case that Henry Ford was a monopolist. Right? They probably, but they'll use it anyway. But they'll, they'll talk about things like that, the Rockefellers, Carnegies, etc. And, you know, railroad monopolies and stuff like that. All of this was done with the assistance of the state. There is, there is no such thing as a sustainable monopoly if the state cannot be used as a by proxy force component to that monopoly. It's impossible. If anybody can compete, somebody will. And if the monopolist is being abusive with their power, the competitor will exploit that opportunity. You know, it makes me think of another thing that I saw today, and it, was, it wasn't stupid, it wasn't dumb, it was just, well, you don't get it. There was a, a picture of a bunch of flour sacks at a factory here in America somewhere, and they had all these prints on them, and this was from the 1930s. And they said that during the Depression, when companies that, that sold flour noticed that because people were so poor and so poorly off and so short of materials, and this extended into the World War II years as well, just on a shortage thing, uh, they were using flour sacks to make dresses and whatnot that, out of kindness, they started making their flour sacks with, like, flowers and prints and stuff on them like that. Well, they didn't do it out of kindness, It was capitalism at its best. So flower company A has a plain sack, and flower company B has a plain sack. And uh, flower company A notices little kids are going to school in dresses and stuff and shirts made out of flower sacks. Flower company A says, well, in the end, flower's flower. I mean, you make bread out of it, you make porridge out of it, stuff like that. But in the end, flower's flower. Wheat's wheat. Grain's grain. We sell all that stuff. 
if we put really cool designs on our sacks, people might start buying ours versus our company B's because there's a plane. So they put a bunch of stuff on it. It worked. People start buying it. Flower Company B said, oh, wait, whoa, 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 wait, what the hell's going on to our sales? They're selling for a penny more a bag or whatever. Yeah, but this is what's going on, sir. Somebody tells the CEO what the hell's going on. He goes, whoa, 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 whoa. How much more? It don't cost that much more to do this. Why don't we do that, too? Let's let's look at their designs make better designs. And, and what you ended up, and this, this happened not just in the United States. This was heavily done during the war years in Great Britain as well. You watch Wartime Farm, you'll see all. You'll find out all about this. And the companies actually started competing to make the best looking sack because it became as much a reason for the purchase as the flower itself. That's capitalism at its best, and that's how the market approaches problems. It's not out of kindness. And, and I posted this to one of the anarcho groups, and they said, well, you know, you just you don't think capitalism can be kind. And, like, they didn't totally didn't get what I was saying. Like, it's always kind to respond to your, respond to your market. Because when someone wants something and you provide it to them, that's an act of kindness. right? I guess you can find some exceptions with sadomasochism or something. But come on, be, be, use common sense. And in general, when somebody would like something, and it didn't hurt anybody to do it, and you give them what they're asking for, that's pretty much an act of kindness. But what motivates the market is the ability to make a profit, and how can I be more kind to you than my competitor and maintain my profit margin? Or how can I actually charge you more and have you happier about buying it through kindness? Well, the kindness I need to extend you is giving you a product that works better, looks better, is more of what you want, lasts longer, whatever it is. And you cannot sustain a monopoly in an environment where that competition is available. I mean, the places where it was easiest to maintain a monopoly were things like pipelines and railroads, electricity, utilities, things where there's you know, an infrastructure that then one person controls and thereby they can control the supply that goes across that infrastructure. And you know what destroyed the railroad monopolies wasn't the government, it was the car and the highway system. The only reason, why did that railroad have a monopoly? Well, I have control of the infrastructure. So I build, well, how did you build it? Did you build it without any government money? No, you didn't. That would actually be a right case for, remember when Barack Obama was like, you didn't build that. You had help with that. Yeah, that would be a case for that. But even in those instances, over time, left free to itself, the market develops technologies that make these infrastructures largely unnecessary. Biggest place you're concerned about it right now is what? Internet. Well, you got to have the wire to get it there. We have such great capability with things like WiMAX and other wireless technologies with Internet today. If they completely 100% pulled the lid off of regulations, there'd be very few people running anything over a fiber or a copper line really, really fast because it would open up technology and deployment of the same so quickly that the technology itself would evolve faster than necessary for the things that we want to transmit right now. Anyway, let's move on. I had a, a question that I thought was pretty interesting. So next up, I have a question from Steve, and Steve says, uh, What supplements, sponsors or not, do you currently take? I try to have a reasonably good diet, but as I get older, I feel like some supplements can help my over health, uh, overall health. Multivitamin, fish oil, probiotics, etc., what, if anything, do you take on a regular basis? 
Well, actually, you're, you're hitting stuff that I take right there. Number one thing that, that I take um, on a regular basis that I think is beneficial to my joints and my, my skeletal health and things like that and my uh, anti-inflammation and what have you, and I, I personally have to admit I did a lot of damage to my body over the years uh, in uh, various activities, whether it be martial arts, sports, you know, military service, rock climbing, just general work. And I have a lot of aches and pains. And as I've mentioned many times, specifically you mentioned sponsors or not, when I talk about Western Botanicals, is turmeric. And I have to credit uh, the good, good folks there uh, with uh, turning me on to turmeric. And for a long time, you know, they're sponsored. I try to be loyal, and I, I took theirs. I, I actually now have a new brand that I take. And I won't even get into the brand names. I'll have links to the stuff that I mentioned specifically uh, today in the show notes if you want to see it. And I'd be interested if you all would like to know, would you like me to go through my individual supplements as items of the day on Amazon? Because they're all available on Amazon. Um, but I, the, the big thing with turmeric that I recommend is there's, there's it's something that's, it's been trademarked Bioprene. But it's basically uh, black pepper extract. And the black pepper extract in of itself doesn't do a lot for you. So it doesn't make it where it's good for your joints and pains and stuff like that. What it does in conjunction with turmeric is the body is actually lousy at absorbing the components in turmeric that, that see to anti-inflammation needs. And the black pepper extract increases the absorption of turmeric by, you know, I'm not even going to say the number because it sounds ridiculous, but the studies I've read back it up by a lot. I'll just say that. And so I started trying. I thought, well, I'll try it. And um, I should reach out to Western Town and say, hey, wouldn't you guys consider adding this to your turmeric formula? Um, because I, I've noticed a decided difference. So the brand I take is in the show notes. I take a good multivitamin, and, and I'll tell you what, the best one I found price-wise for what's in it is is from Amazon Elements. It's basically the Amazon branded multivitamin. Uh, it sells for not much more than Centrum. It's a hell of a lot better. It's a hell of a lot more bioavailable. They publish all of their test results. It's something that even some of the higher end vitamin companies don't do. Um, it's in you know very absorbable form. Uh, it's got a great botanical blend that goes along with it, and it, it handles most of the things that we need to make sure we're getting. And in a well rounded diet, you get everything you need, but all of us fail to meet that well-rounded diet from time to time. And I just think it's low-cost insurance. So take a good multivitamin, the one I take is specifically designed for men. Um, in addition to that multivitamin, here's the things that I, I, I take and why. Uh, I take CoQ10, which is uh, an antioxidant that is fantastic for heart health, does a lot of other great things for you. And I take it because it's expensive enough that it's generally not in multivitamin formulas and it's not in the Amazon formula. It's of the antioxidants that are out there that are, I guess you'd call higher end, you know, higher cost ones. It is the one that I've decided to spend my money on and make sure I'm investing in my health with it. And there's a lot of great things that it does. I'm not going to go into it. I don't want to make the show a whole show on nothing but health. Uh, but again, I think if you're concerned with your heart, uh, and you're concerned with how your body uses what's available to it in addition to this particular antioxidant, it's probably the best one outside of the typical antioxidants you can supplement. Uh, I also supplement ALA. A ALA um, allows your body to do a better job of using the glucose in your blood. Uh, it's specifically recommended for type 2 and people that are pre-diabetic. 
And while I think that's a good idea, I believe in using it before you need it. And since I am of a diet uh, discipline that involves reduced carbohydrate, and I'm concerned about sugar spikes in my blood, and I'm trying to maintain a good insulin-glycogen balance, it just makes sense that if there is sugar in your blood, if your body's able to actually use it more efficiently, then it's going to get out of your blood sooner. So when you have your occasional... Uh, falls from grace and you eat that thing that you know you shouldn't have and sometimes that's simply boy that toast that the wife put butter on and she gave my granddaughter smells good and I, I've been a good boy for two weeks and I'm going to have a piece of toast this morning uh, that blood sugar spike is is better dealt with by the body on ALA uh, and I, I just think it's again it's one of those supplements that makes a lot of sense two things that are in the multivitamin that I take in addition to it because I believe they're so useful is vitamin D and vitamin C Vitamin D is one of the best immuno uh, support vitamins you can take. There is a thousand units in the uh, Amazon multivitamin that's generally considered more than enough, even by people that recommend supplementation beyond the RDA. Uh, I take additional vitamin D. Uh, I take that twice a day uh, at a 200 200 IU unit uh, in addition to that thousand. So I'm on 1400 a day. And I take my multivitamin with lunch, and I take the additional vitamin D in the morning uh, with breakfast and the evening with dinner. And, and I think that is a big reason that I stay pretty damn healthy and come around flu season and what have you, uh, other than when I do workshops and get exposed to 800 of you guys and, and talk for a long time and lower my immune system. Vitamin C, uh, I take that in addition to what's in the multivitamin. Uh, I take it in 250 milligram, and I use Nature's Choice, exactly what you'd get. Uh, at a, at Walmart in a chewable because they taste good and they're kind of like candy. Now, uh, they kind of are. Uh, they're not that great, but they're kind of like eating a Sour Patch Kid or something, uh, except they're chalky. Uh, I take them in the, the chewable form because I know they're going to be well-absorbed in that form. And in addition to what's in the standard multivitamin, I take that three times a day, morning, afternoon, and evening. And I think it's one of the easiest and safest supplements to take, and it's also cheap. So it makes sense. And I take a probiotic. And the probiotic I take is linked in the show notes. It seems expensive until you realize that for about 60 bucks you get a six-month supply. And I take one of those a day, uh, and I take that middle of the day. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I am not an organized guy. I know that I put this show out every day, and I seem like an organized guy, but I'm your classic entrepreneur. And the only way I can get myself into a position where I take these things is I have a weekly pill bottle, and I actually have two of them. And uh, when one's empty, that weekend I fill it, uh, and then that way the other one's ready for me to start using. And if I didn't have that broken down by day, by morning, evening, I look like a freaking you know old guy on a million pills uh, to take these few supplements. But without that, I cannot stay on a schedule. It's impossible. So I recommend that unless you're the kind of person that easily stays on schedule with that. I do it with the meals because it's generally considered a good practice but it's more because i'm gonna eat those meals and by making it a habit and a routine that when you get lunch eat your stuff it gets done the other thing is when i am sick when i do get an illness i double the probiotic and i double the vitamin c and i also add garlic ginger and honey and elderberry during that period of time The garlic, I take a simple garlic supplement during that time, and occasionally I'll take that. Like if I haven't eaten very well, I'll go ahead and uh, you know, keep that in the refrigerator. It's just basically garlic powder in a, in a gelatin capsule. Uh, 
Um, ginger and honey, when I'm sick, I'm going to use that in a tea form, probably with tea. You know, probably with a green tea or Earl Grey or something like that. So, you know, I'll be just chopping up some fresh garlic and ginger, pouring hot water over it, making a tea, adding a little bit of honey. Uh, I think that's a, a fantastic way to boost your immune system during a period of time like that. Uh, you might be like, well, you know, uh, did I say garlic? Just the ginger, honey, and tea. I'm sorry, the garlic, I take the supplement. Uh, and then elderberry, I take a, a powdered supplement of elderberry or elderberry syrup when I make my own from the elderberries we grow on the property. And, and, and that's really it. And, you know, that whole last thing is if you're sick. So day-to-day, -day, I take turmeric, a multivitamin, CoQ10, ALA, vitamin D, vitamin C, and probiotic. I should add fish oil. Yeah, I really should, and any good quality fish oil is a good thing, and it's hot. It's a great source of omega-3s. And uh, so that's something you probably should, uh, I should add, and probably you should add. But you asked me what I actually do take, and there it is. Hopefully that helps you. And again, some of the products that I use are in today's show notes, specifically the turmeric, the CoQ10, and the multivitamin from Amazon. Again, the, the Amazon multivitamin um, is, for the price, you're basically getting a very high-end You know, supplement, something that generally for the equivalent bottle, you'd pay something like $24 to $30 bucks for, for about $14. So that's more than Centrum, but less than the equivalent product, because it's a hell of a lot better than Centrum or whatever else there is. Uh, next, I have a question I thought was really interesting. And I thought it felt really fit really well with some of my lead-off questions. Let me read the whole question for you. Because this, uh, this is also a teachable moment. I always say, ask me your question in one sentence, and they give me as much details as you want, and you can get on the air. So Christina, who sent this in, absolutely nailed that process. And I'll, I'll show you how long it is, and I actually read it because she followed the process. Question. How can a small town or rural community preemptively protect itself from big city transplants? All right. Details. Listen to how long the details are. And I read them all because she followed the formula. More and more people from bad states like California, Illinois, are moving to states that have more freedom like Texas, Idaho, Arizona. Also, more people are moving from big cities in fear states to outlying suburbs, small towns, and even rural areas. I hear many complaints from people in those areas about how outsiders come and immediately try to change things. They go to city council meetings or whatever, the local government is called, and they push for new laws, new, no cars on lawns, no chickens, no compost piles, new zoning laws, etc. If you are someone who is noticing outsiders starting to come in their area, what would you suggest the current residents do to preempt them and keep them from changing things? Do you think it's possible to enact rules or laws that won't allow for them to make changes? How would you present that to local elected government officials? I realize that like-minded people could band together and run for office so they could control things, but many people aren't cut out to be politicians and don't have the time or desire in public office. What do you think would be the most effective way for ordinary citizens to approach current officials? To cut this off at the pass, or, is, or if some people were able to get themselves and other like-minded people into office, what laws or rules would you recommend they enact? As a Californian who is about to walk to freedom to a small town in Idaho, I would like to make sure the town stays the way it is. I'm moving there to have freedom. I won't keep it that way. If I start seeing people try to Californitize it, I want to become involved and find ways to intervene. Actually, I don't want to wait. I'd like to be proactive and try to encourage lawmakers to enact laws and rules that would make it difficult or impossible for people like me to come in here and make unwanted changes. I said people like her. I made a joke out of that. All right, so, Christina, it's a great question. 
Here's the most direct and accurate answer, though it can be difficult to do. Most government bodies run by some form of a constitution, though at a town, township, county level, it may be called a charter or something else, but in the end it is a form of a constitution. It says what the government can and cannot do and charges what the government is supposed to do. Government is enacted for the following. It's exactly the same as the United States. For the following reasons, this government has been enacted and entrusted with the powers to do these things, and this is what it's supposed to do. Here's the way that it can do it. Here's the form in which that gets done. And here's the things that it absolutely is prohibited from doing. Well, here's the thing. Uh, Susie, Debbie, and, 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 and Mary come into a small town, and they all happen to be friends from California who moved out of Icky, California because they couldn't find a job no more. They get here, and all of a sudden they look around, everybody has chickens and stuff like that, and they don't like it, so they all go down and start bitching. And they bitch to the council to pass an ordinance to make this stuff go away, to limit this, to add some kind of zoning, whatever it is. Now, let's say that the ability of the government to do these things wasn't there. Government does not have the power to do these things. It's not that a law says you can. It's that part of the charter, i.e. an amendment, says the government of the township of Jabitville ain't got no damn business doing these things and shall not do them. Well, what those three people want is irrelevant now. They can go build a neighborhood and have a little HOA and say we don't do it here if they can get enough other people to move in there and buy houses and sign on board with it. But they just don't have any way to do this to anybody. So the best thing that you could do, though it's definitely going to be difficult, is wherever you live to start at the localist level and say, hey, we like the way this place is. We don't want it to change. Let's pass some resolutions or at least ask people if they'd like us to that say we can't do anything to change things in certain areas, that this government will not interfere with the ability of our people to fill in the blank, and thereby limit the ability of government to do it, so that now it wouldn't be as simple as whoever's serving on the town council or county board or whatever it is going, yay, nay, and passing a law, that you would now have to amend the document, which is why it's hard for you to do. It's complicated, but it's a much more much more difficult process, especially to give government a power that it's already been restricted from having. That is difficult to get done. So that would be the first place. However, like I said, it's difficult to do because what you're saying to this group of people is why don't you limit yourselves? Why don't you restrict yourselves? Now, if you could form some kind of a coup and obtain a majority and then cause direction and do that, I think that would be one of the best things you could do is to place limits upon the entity itself. Because again, these busybody types, instead of making a case for why they're right and demonstrating it and asking others to follow their example, they use force by proxy to get things done. That's where the problem comes from. Again, we are back to the problem is the state. If there was no ability of the state to say you can't have a chicken in your backyard then the people that don't like chickens would just have to find a place where everybody agrees with them and go live there. Instead of moving somewhere where people already have this and trying to force it on, force their will on others. However, it's probably not going to happen. What I would do, if it was me and I was really worried that there might be a threat, I would form a group. 
the we go to all the meetings group. And I would get 20 or 30 people that all agree on the one basic premise. This government don't need to be doing nothing they ain't already doing. That they should not interfere with the freedom of individuals to live their life as they see fit. That's the only thing everybody has to agree on. And you can all go there with your with your laptops and smartphones and actually work on like extra work or do something for the Little League team or whatever while you're sitting there quietly with your hands in your lap doing your job, reading a book, whatever it is. You can even almost have like what you'd call guard duty because these meetings are boring. For the first 15 minutes, you two people pay attention to every word that's said and kind of start poking people if they're saying something about screwing with other people's lives, Right? And he's kind of sort of listening in the background, not really focused. And then in the next 15 minutes, you two people are on, on deck with that, right? So you don't get bored. And then if someone says something like, we're considering this restriction that would require all new houses to have paved driveways or something, something like that that starts to interfere with the freedom of people to have self-determination on their own property where they ain't bothering no one, All of you say, I, I don't like that, and just, just be there and say, I don't want you doing that. Because the majority of the time, the reason these things ever get up ahead of steam is when somebody brings it up, don't nobody say nothing about it. And then that group of people's just sitting there going, well, shit, the people that care that are here, well, they don't have a problem with this, so maybe we should do it. And that doesn't mean that they immediately make a decision to do it, but it becomes a thing. It becomes an item for debate. It becomes a potential ordinance. If there's enough people there, not when it's been charged up, but on, on day-to-day business, there's enough people that are going, no, oh, no, hell no. No, 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 you don't do that. Well, then what they feel like is the people that concern themselves that show up don't want that, so it never gets a start, you see? And that's local politics. And one of the easiest things to do in local politics is prevent something from happening. But you have to stop it before it looks like it was contrived. They don't generally respond well when somebody goes out on Facebook and, and drums up support and marches on the next meeting. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It's the only move you have once that starts. But if you want to head it off at the pass, which is what you said you want to do, then you form this group of hold-the-liners And you're at every meeting. And you, you build your group to at least 40, if not more. So there's always like 20 to 20. And you make a, 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 a roster. If you can't be there, it's your responsibility to swap places with somebody. And all you got to do is show up, generally not say anything, and just object when they start proposing that they're going to do stupid shit. And at that small town level, it's incredibly effective. It's incredibly effective. And it's generally not hard to find people that feel this way. And the reason most people that feel this way don't get involved is they don't think it works. But when you break it down to simplicity, when somebody starts wanting to do something stupid, you just say, I don't want you to do that. Generally, people are willing to do it. And again, the smaller the town, township, et cetera, county, the, the more effective this is. And, you know, the other thing is, is there any real potential for it where you're going anyway? Generally, if most of the people in a town are doing something already, they ain't going to pass a law against it. It's when a small minority are doing something, and then the rest either have a problem with it, and then this is where the real majority generally is. It's just not important to them, so they don't care. 
So when someone starts bitching about chickens, and then they bring in some pre-packaged propaganda about how they're dangerous and deadly, the, the, the township council, whatever, feels like, well, we did something good. And no one complained until after we did it, and those are just those people engaged in that horrible behavior anyway. That's how you headed off the past. But the best thing you can do is restrict the body of government from the ability to do things like that in the first place through amendments to charters, constitutions, etc. And what we really need in this country to be a sustainable constitutional republic is, honest to God, even though I'm not a political guy, I would love to see a convention of the states severely restrict the federal government. And I'd like to see... In, in individual states, I'd like to see more movements to put amendments in the state constitution that restrict the state further. And, and if we were a freedom-loving people, we'd be doing that. And the fact that we're not, it tells you something about your fellow Americans and your fellow citizens of your state. In general, people say that they are freedom-loving. But what they really mean is they want things their way and they want other people to have it their way. Otherwise, it would actually be easy to restrict the state. Because people are all about freedom and liberty until you start saying, well, you don't get to impede people yourself. You don't get to say what others get to do either. Well, I'm all for freedom and liberty. Well, okay, let's let's stop putting people in jail for a plant. What you talking about? Well, I'm talking about cannabis. Oh, you mean marijuana? No, that's the devil. Jesus said not to smoke marijuana. Really? What Bible do you have? Because I didn't read that. Well, it's just a basic morality thing. I had a guy said that told me to my face Jesus was against marijuana, and I asked him where in the Bible that was, and he said it was a basic morality thing. Talk about turning on a dime. So people are all about restricting the state until you say, well, the state should not have the ability to restrict plants. Well, that makes sense. But you talking about cannabis because we can't have that. That marijuana, that's bad. Them jazz players use it. You know what they do? I mean, really, that's where this whole prohibition mindset comes from. So, I mean, I think we should say the state has no business restricting the cultivation and use of a plant. Period. What about invasive species? Okay. <laughs> well, I don't think that's the kind of plants we're talking about, but we'll just let that go there. Restrict the state. That's the number one way to prevent people from using the state to change things. Uh, this is on the steep slope. So we had a guy ride in from New York. He had a steep slope. It was like 120 feet long, but only about six foot high, about 60 to 70 degree angle. I gave some thoughts on it. I won't repeat. But here's what Linda said about it uh, on the blog. And again, I thought this was a great comment helping others. Linda says about the steep slope, I think the caller said he's from upstate New York. You're correct, Linda. He did. So I am also in central New York, zone 5-6. White clover is fine. That's what I recommend. But crown vetch is the classic for steep slopes in the northeast. Very tough, adds nitrogen, and has pretty pink flowers. You can get seed easily. It's late to plant now, but the USDA link tells you how and when. I don't think you said the exposure to the site, but vetch can cope with most conditions, probably not full shade. Odds are a slope like that's not in full shade. Um, also versatile are the common orange daylilies. Uh, I agree. Daylilies are very tough, especially in that climate, uh, and they're edible. Right now, the buds and flowers, prized in Chinese cooking, are ready. Uh, look for them on roadsides. Most people who have them have too many would happily let you dig some bulbs. You know, that's a great 
that's a great suggestion, Linda. It really is. That would be because you don't have to mow. They take up space. They propagate easily. Produce edible tubers and edible flowers and edible bulbs. Uh, sounds great. Um, I agree with Jack that raspberries are good. I find pruning actually enjoyable and easy to do. It happens at a time of the year when you don't have much else to do outside. I agree with that, Linda. That's why I recommended cane fruits. Another thing to consider are black currants. They're very tough and versatile. The fruit is not really for fresh eating, but it makes excellent juice, jelly, etc. Like elderberry, it's rich in antithons. Uh, yeah, now that you mention it, black currants, red currants, golden currants, white currants. You could, I mean, with currants, cane fruits, and crown vetch as a ground cover, Uh, or uh, Clover's ground cover, you could do a hell of a lot there. Um, and, and I guess that I'd say in that area, kind of thinking along that lines, uh, gooseberries would be another thing that you could include in that system. And uh, the you mentioned currants, so gooseberries and currants, when we cross them, we get something called a jostaberry. Uh, and that would be another great thing to add to there. Uh, then she says, the person asked about energy drinks in the same episode. Quick comment on energy drinks. Classic old-time energy drink was Switchel, which contained apple cider vinegar, vinegar molasses, ginger diluted with cold water, uh, and if convenient, ice. Many recipes uh, online, no stimulants, a little sugar, refreshing, and rich in minerals. You're absolutely right on that. Uh, and you mentioned the molasses. Uh, another thing that you could use in that, and some people make Switchel with it, uh, is sorghum. And sorghum is so high in nutrients during the Great Depression, doctors recommended it as a mineral and nutrient su uh, supplement because it was cheap and readily available to help prevent malnutrition. So that's, that's a good one, too. So I kind of like where you're going there. I guess I tried to oversimplify it, but going to a true polyculture, and what I'd recommend it was taking and marking out a contour line about midway up that, uh, that thing and basically putting in like a swell-like, terrace-like feature Basically, just take a rototiller, and it'd be a pain in the ass to do. I'll admit it. Um, but, I mean, you'd have somebody above you with a rope so it didn't go rolling down the hill. And just rototill, you know, double rototill in there and then scrape that out as a level path. That's the easiest way I know to do it. There, you could do it with just a road hoe or something. But putting in a level path halfway up would give you the ability to service it from the bottom, the top, and the center and give you a nice flat path to walk on and help with erosion as well. So... I kind of like that. That would be a cool-ass system. Crown vetch understory, growing a, a forest garden on miniature containing uh, raspberries and blackberries along with daylilies, black currants, white currants, red currants, um, and uh, jostaberries and gooseberries. That'd be a heck of, You could throw in, uh, what, do you, what do you call goji berry into that, too. And you can make it, and with 120 feet to work with, that, that would be a kick-ass system. I almost want to go up and do it for him now. Uh, but anyway, thanks for that, Linda. That, that's a great way to expand that one. Uh, next question comes from Daniel. Says, My question is about losing weight. I'm trying to lose about 30 pounds. We eat pretty close to paleo with some slight variations. But I'm going to try to get tighter on that. I know in the past you talked about just how counting calories doesn't matter or work much. Do I just eat paleo and exercise then, or should I be doing that plus still keeping my calorie count low? My other struggle is that if I don't eat about every two hours, my stomach gives me major issues. So I find my calorie count creeps up because of that sometimes to Daniel. Um, the thing is, if you do any of the classic low-carb diets correctly, you really don't need to worry about counting calories. 
The problem is so many people don't. And the reason is that whatever that carb count is you should be getting, you should be getting it mostly from vegetables. And if you do get it from vegetables, you're going to be eating a lot of low-calorie, high-fiber vegetables. That's, I mean, if you're getting your carbohydrate count from bell peppers and lettuce and kale and spinach and strawberries and all low-carb vegetables and the few low-carb fruits that are out there, the amount of food you're going to eat will surprise you, and it will be relatively low-calorically. If you're doing that, you're going to eat less meat and fat. In fact, what you're going to, your main challenge, and what I actually recommend for you, Daniel, is to get the book, and I'll put a link in the show notes to my review of it, a Protein Power Plan, the original one. And they're so cheap, I go ahead and get both of them, the newer version of the book, and I'll put a link to both of the reviews I have on those for you, and to follow that process. Because that's going to make you figure out how much protein you need to be eating And then you're going to actually have to plan that into your meal. Now, you can do paleo with this diet regime. I'm talking about this diet regime more as your way of accounting for your minerals and nutrients. So all you have to do is there may be some things that Dr. Ede says you can have, like dairy products, like cheese, which I have no problem with, by the way, as long as you don't physically like have a lactose issue or something. And paleo says, if you're on a strict paleo, no dairy. So then you would just get the accounting done from other things. If you're doing keto, again, things like cheese are okay. I think you can do keto on protein power. But what the big thing is you're going to look at who you are, what your body type is, how big you are, what you weigh, what your goals are. And it's going to give you a protein requirement. Because this is, the, this is where it all falls apart. If you're not getting the carbs, the small amount that you're allowed to have from the right source, you're going to seriously reduce the bulk of your diet. Now, I don't mean the bulk of your calories. I mean the bulk of the volume. When you reduce the bulk of the volume, then you start saying, well, I'm almost doing it. And what you mean is I had a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this. And you fool yourself. For instance, Dorothy wanted to make meatballs for this week. And she wanted to fall back to her old recipe. That includes some barbecue sauce and some breadcrumbs. And it turned out it wasn't that bad. But what I pointed out is, okay, so if you eat four of these meatballs, making them this way, you're up to like 11 carbohydrates, which isn't over your limit for the day, but it's getting like halfway there. And that's 11 carbohydrates you can't have from other sources, including the good sources like leafy greens, like broccoli, like bell pepper, like hot peppers, right? So now we've reduced the bulk we can have from somewhere. You see what I'm saying? And the whole thing starts falling apart. And then you get into this where you're always hungry every couple hours. Because even though you're eating a lot of meat and fat, you're not eating any bulk and fiber to go along with it. So I would really recommend that you go with the Protein Power Plan. I think it's the best place for people to start. And then you can tailor the accounting that comes with that to any other dietary discipline you want, whether it be paleo, primal, uh, keto, etc. cetera. Uh, and with keto, you may have to adjust the accounting toward the keto side. Uh, your phase one in protein power is a ketogenic diet. Your phase two is the edge of a ketogenic diet. And your phase three, or your maintenance phase, you will not be in ketosis continuously. And I am okay with ketosis. 
I don't think that a human body belongs in ketosis permanently, perpetually. I don't think that makes sense. It is a very good way to be in a weight-losing situation. In fact, it is probably the most effective way to get in a weight loss situation. And it is not dangerous. The problem is the modern dietary nutritionist medical world has such a pushback on this stuff because it so flies in the face of their food pyramid, which is basically cattle feed nutrient allocation, by the way. And they don't like it, so they got to fight it. And if you try to fight it with science... You know, you can't. You have to fight it with hyperbole and the USDR, US, USDA and the recommended daily, blah, 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 and everybody knows low fiber is good, but you can't actually fight it with science. So you use what people that want to use science use when they can't use science, which is conflation, with something you can say is bad with science. So the conflation is, well, ketosis is bad. No, ketoacidosis is bad. Ketoacidosis, a form of ketosis, is bad. That's what diabetics go into when they're basically burning muscle. Ketosis means you're burning fat. That's what it means. So if you want to lose weight, oh, yeah, you got to burn fat. That's okay, there you go. Um, now, again, the statement you don't really have to count calories. If you follow the diet, you don't because when it comes to eating excess calories, you won't. If you are getting 18 carbohydrates a day uh, on a phase two protein power, for instance, and you're getting it from vegetables, not fruits, right? And not, oh, well, I'm going to let myself have a cookie. I'm going to let myself have a piece. Of If you're getting it from vegetables, I promise you, you are not going to go over your caloric uh, requirements. You're not going to have to count them. You just ain't going to eat enough to get there. If you're, if you're cheating a little bit, and you're allowing that addictive nature of carbohydrate to come in, those calories are going to creep well and above. Now, I've lost weight eating more calories than supposedly would let me lose weight. But we're talking a few hundred a day, not a couple thousand. And it's really quick that you start getting into those ranges faster than you would think. When you start cheating a little bit, and then all of a sudden that one piece of chocolate you have a week becomes one a night, and then a beer goes with it. And you know, I, I've, I've said this before, I've struggled with weight on and off at times, but low carb, keto, paleo has never failed me. I have failed it, but it has never failed me. And if you'll, if you'll stick to those principles, and here's what you'll find if you'll do it, it won't take long. And the cravings will go away. The cravings will go away. And when you do let yourself have a cheat day, do you know what will happen? You'll be like, this wasn't really that good after all. Uh, next up, uh, I have a, uh, an email here from John. Student loan debt tops $1.5 trillion. And big tech companies are finding a way to help. I'm not going to read it to you again because I don't want the show to go too long today. But basically what's going on is that there's a lot of... Tech companies, it's not always, like the one given an example here is a bank. And to attract talent, especially STEM talent, which has the highest uh, student loan debt, the, the science, technology, engineering, and math guys are the ones that, to compete, they're taking on more debt and taking more expensive colleges and courses, etc. Uh, banks have a hard time attracting those people. 
Uh, sometimes because those people don't even think about going to work for a bank. You know, I come out with a degree in computer technology or computer engineering or something like that or uh, what have you. And, uh, well, you don't really think about going to work for a bank, do you? You think, well, I'm going to go work for Google. One of these cool tech. I'm going to work for Twitter. I'm going to go work for a programming company or some company that's on the cutting edge of XYZ. And if you think about technology, one of the largest users of technology in the world is financial institutions for so many different reasons. So this particular bank that's mentioned in this article, what they're saying is, you come work here, we'll help pay off your student loans. And more and more companies are starting to do that, and it may become the perk, in air quotes, of the millennial generation. Go to work for these people for five years, and your student loans will be paid back up to, let's say, $50,000. Which sounds like a big deal, doesn't it? Sure does. Okay. <laughs> It's the freaking shell game, guys. Come on. People that are savvy enough to do this can do math. That M in STEM, mathematics. So what they do, let's say they say, well, we'll pay off up to 50 grand. They're going to have certain requirements to do that, and they're going to figure out an average and how much do people actually owe that come in for this job. Because 50 th sounds good, but a lot of people are going to have less than that. And what they'll say is they'll do this. And let's say that you owe $25,000 in student loan debt. And if you follow the thing and do everything you're supposed to do and stay there five years, uh, they'll, they'll pay off your student loans for you over time. They'll give you student loan assistance or whatever it is up to this particular amount. Okay. So they just gave you a $5,000 a year raise to your salary. They just called it something different. Because let me tell you something about negotiating five grand on a salary. If you're good, it ain't hard. You probably do better. But this generation is so wrapped up in the fact that they have student loan debt. I'm taking a lower salary, man, but they're paying my student loans. It's so great. Okay, so you took $10,000 left in pay to get $30,000 paid off over five years. And you have a degree in technology. Yeah, man, it's great. Okay. Be well, my son. May you go forth and not multiply, man. Holy crap, but that's what's going on here. They're not going to pay. Like, I guarantee you that a person could go in that was equally qualified and say, listen, I want that as salary. And I'm sure in some instances the person hiring them has no flexibility and can't do it. But in general, you have a remember what I said, and this is apart from this story today. <laughs> you have the most leveraged you will ever have with any company, with a few rare exceptions, the day before they hire you. Once they hire you, they take you for granted. Because now you're supposed to do a job. Now I got shit to take care of, and I don't have time to cater to your piddly bullshit about you want more than we agreed to give you when you came in the door. Now you're getting the same damn 3% raise that everybody else gets, the same damn bonus structure, and if you want more money, go make your bonuses and leave me the hell alone. I got shit to do. I got to hire somebody else tomorrow. Don't make me have to hire two. That's, that is the cold-blooded world you enter with business. Well, I don't think it's fair. No one gives a shit what you think. Right? No one cares. Well, it just doesn't seem right. No one cares. Well, I care. You don't count. You don't count. 
Because you're not making the decisions now, are you? And when you get to the point where you're making the decisions, you also will not care at that point. It would be called maturity. You'll understand the reality of, of, of the, the workplace by that point. Okay, and, and you'll understand how sniveling those people sound that just got hired that are lucky to have a job because you have to teach them their job that they supposedly think they just learned in the last four to five years of college. So this is the reality. You have more power the day before you hire than any other time. So you could probably negotiate a certain amount of compensation, and they'll put it wherever you want it. This is marketing. But it does show something that I think is very important. The corporations of the world are recognizing this problem. And what they're actually doing is, in their own way, trying to help prevent the student loan bubble from bursting Because if we have an economic crisis, it's not good for them either. Again, this is a positive aspect of true capitalism. And I think you'll see more and more companies doing this. Because here's what the company's thinking. Especially think about a company with like 50,000 employees that's going to hire, let's say, 500 or 1,000 people like this a year. If we give all these new hires an extra five grand a year, most of them are still going to make their minimum payments on student loans. But if we pay them the same and not go up to compete for them, but we offer them up to $5,000 a year in assistance with student loan repayments under our own specific requirements and directives, like in some instances companies say, you have to have graduated in the last 18 months. That's one of the requirements. So, what, so they can target the specific type of person they want to hire. And we can make sure this money actually goes against debt. Then, you know what? Then we start to actually chisel away at this and we start heading this off because the companies of the world don't want a crisis anymore than anybody else. In fact, they want it less. Remember the bloodletting in 08, 09? I'll tell you what, the student loan bubble, if it ever pops, it's going to make that look like a dead Disneyland. Companies are acknowledging this. And... I think you're going to see a lot of other things come out of this. You're going to start seeing more of the nano degrees and stuff like that as well, and, and a reduction in how many people are going into this system. Because this is it's a broken system. I mean, you have people coming out of school with $50,000 worth of debt that actually aren't qualified to do anything. And there's a chart in this article. It's just ironic to look at. Um, a person that comes out of college with a bachelor's degree in liberal arts has an average monthly salary if they get a job that requires a degree, and that's a couple big ifs, right, uh, at 3300 bucks. But somebody coming out with a, uh, a degree in even social science, 4100 So you got a lot of people. Now, when I think liberal arts, I don't, I don't even think anybody calls it that anymore. But there's a whole bunch of shit that they name a degree for that you just kind of throw into that lump sum there. And uh, by the way, if you get a master's degree in something like that, you're up to about 4300 bucks. Your master's bonus, they call it, this thing is about $900. Bucks. Uh, it, 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 it's kind of sad. But uh, if you had a degree in something like business, you're looking at more like $4,800. And an MBA, you're looking at more like eight grand with a bonus by having that master's degree about $3,200. So a degree can pay off if it's the right kind of degree and the right discipline. But if we started looking at all of the people that have degrees and things that you really need a degree for that have the aptitude for them so they can capitalize them and take out all the people that just are there because they got nothing else to do with the next four years of their life, 
you'd start to see college uh, participation rates that look more like they did in, let's say, the 1970s when they made a hell of a lot more sense. And you wouldn't have a $1.5 trillion student loan debt where a full third to a half have no hope of ever fully repaying their loans, either because of a lack of discipline or a lack of earnings potential. I've had people email me that have debt over $120,000 that their entry-level jobs pay $36,000 a year. You really got to think about the lack of wisdom in our society today, especially in the world of education, which is ironic, isn't it? That one of the greatest failings of wisdom in society is today's education system. How effed are we? I, I, I guess uh, the next one is kind of on the same note here. We're uh, we're still talking about the education system. It's another Jack, you're right email. At least it's one of those ones where, yeah, okay, good, I'm right. You don't go, damn it. I mean, they're saying how you jack your ride. Like, ah, this sucks. I feel like uh, the Simpsons, of course, have been uh, uh, rewarded, I guess, or, or cited as, as forecasting the election of Donald Trump as president. And they had previously hinted that in several episodes, uh, including nailing the elevator thing, uh, or escalator thing, I'm sorry. And uh, right after Trump got elected, they had an episode where, you know, Bart's always writing something on the chalkboard that said, being right sucks. A lot of times I feel that way. This, this time I really don't, because it does show the decline of the public education system. Randy says, Jack, you're right. South Carolina and several other states are pushing what they call Connections Academy, or Virtual Public Homeschool. Please see the link below. We looked into this several years ago. Then it was limited enrollment, much like charter schools. Now it appears to be open enrollment for anyone who wants it. Essentially, the student accesses classes by video over the Internet. I assume the teachers are the best and brightest available. Yeah, I don't. I think they're the most uh, hmm, obedient, probably. Let's say that. Uh, the student is mailed all the books and supplies they need for the class. The student can even go to their local school for extracurricular activities like bands, sports, clubs, etc. When we look at this program, we must assume the school system is realizing several things. One... Their minimum security prisons are not appealing to parents. Two, students can learn without a teacher overlording them. Three, Jack is right, their school system is failing. Note, I didn't say they got it right. It's still the same curriculum a student will receive in a brick-and-mortar school, which is abysmal, and they're still using paper books and workbooks. Uh, there's, and there are many unboxing videos on YouTube. Randy, the unboxing videos, man. I just I don't get that. Anyway, so... Um, But what this is is actually a lesson in the free market. So for a long time, schools never cared about what parents really thought. They had their little PTA bullshit, and they said they wanted you involved. And what they really mean when they say they want parents involved in education is what? They want you to make the kids do what the school says they're supposed to do. They don't want you doing things like asking your kid questions and helping them actually ferret out ideas and actually challenge uh, what they're being told when it might be wrong or something like that. They don't, they don't really want you involved. They want you to be the enforcer of their will. All right? That's what parental involvement means. You make them do what we tell them to do. Um, and the only competition that schools really felt any pain from was private schools. 
and due to the expense of private schooling, their effect was marginal at best. And the percentage of children that went to private schools versus public schools was relatively flat and even declining over the last 40 years. And then something happened. Homeschool. Now, it was always with us, but all of a sudden, homeschoolers started doing things like entering national science fairs, applying for college scholarships, entering spelling bees, and they started kicking the ass out from under the kids that went to the proper government schools. They say public schools. Remember, I think that is a lie. They're not public schools. They're government schools. They're paid for with government money. They're run by government employees, and the government says what they can and cannot do, including what you're allowed to do as far as going there to see your own kid or pick them up, and could punish you by fines or jail time if your kid doesn't come there as many times a year as they say they have to. That is not public. That is government. Well, all of a sudden, people started to look at public schooling for what it is, government schools, and they started looking at the supposed weirdo, you know, introverted kids that were the homeschool kids and going, wait a minute, kind of wish my kid was a lot more like those weird kids over there with weird and a, a big air quote because that weird kid wasn't so weird. The, I'll tell you the number one thing that has spread homeschool. As soon as it actually caught on enough that the average person would actually meet and talk to one homeschool kid in their life, you had about a 80% chance that that kid would blow you away. They would absolutely blow you away with who and what they were. I'm telling you, I've interviewed kids to come work here uh, as farmhands and things like that, and I've had a couple of them that are homeschool kids. I talk to them for five minutes, and I go, you're homeschooled, aren't you? And they go, yes, sir. And they always say, yes, sir. It's funny. Uh And I don't say it because they're weird or awkward. I say it because, you know, by the time they're 15 or 16, they're handling themselves better than most 25-year-olds. So what's happened is the average person that had this jaded view, this kind of I don't know view, I was always open to it, but I also kind of had this, uh, I'm talking before TSP, I had this like, uh, I'd met one homeschool kid in my life, and he was really a little bit weird. And then looking back, I go, well, of course he was weird. His mother was weird, and his father was weird, and he had weird genetics, and he was being taught by weird people to be weird. This kid would have been weird if he was in public school. He probably would have had it a lot more miserable and been a lot weirder if he was forced into public school. And, and But along the way, I started meeting kids that, you know, they're 15 years old. They look at you with their shoulders back, look you in the eye and say, nice to meet you, sir. Stick their hand out and shake your hand. And they give you that good, firm handshake, and you start talking to them, and they're talking to you at a mid-20s level. For You're like, well, that's it. Any argument you had just went away. Well, as that happened, we, you know, we went from like having a million kids nationwide homeschool to two million to three million and growing. Well, it starts to hurt. Three million kids in a nation of 300 million people. Think about that. That's about 1% of the total population, not school-age children. 1% of the population, too young and too old for school, is now going to homeschool. And the number's growing exponentially. So they, the, 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 the government schools started to really experience something they never experienced before. Competition. Competition. They're 
monopoly by government default began to fall apart. And all of the talk for how you got to have classrooms and you got to have you can't do this and there's no way they're going to get and they resisted it for so long. But once they started to feel it in the pocket, well now they have their own program for homeschool. It's just as good. Hey, your your books will be free. Which means will you stolen money to pay for them? And we'll get and what they're going to do is they're passing laws <laughs> where they get to count the kid is attending as long as they're doing their work. So now they still get the money for them. They're assigning them as, well, you get to go to extracurricular activities. Well, that's because you're assigned to so-and-so high school, so-and-so middle school. So you count as a student there, so they still get all the money for you without you actually having to be there. That's slick, isn't it? Yeah. So this is what happens the minute competition is introduced into a system. Everything... Even the shitty stuff gets better. And that's a lesson in free market economics. And, they'll, and they're going to get better at it. I don't think they'll ever be good enough, but they're going to get a lot better. And the more competition they face, and the more they lose, the better they'll get. Because now they're trying to say, hey, 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 you know all you guys, we said you were weirdos, and we said you were hurting the, the school system, and we said you were selfish, and we said that you had an obligation to send your kids to our minimum security, I mean our schools. Uh, yeah, um, uh, yeah, forget that. Forget that we always, we said all that stuff. Just, just forget that. Let's, let's live and let live. Hey, use our stuff to teach your kids now. Look, we got free shiny books. You won't have to go buy them yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's only just begun. The day they started doing this, and like almost every every school district in America is doing something like this now. Almost every one of them. They're waving the white flag. But unlike real warfare, where often the enemy will go, oh, okay, you're surrendering? Okay, we'll come to terms. Okay, and it ain't that bad for you? Like, hey, we just didn't want you invading us, so now you can go back and do your own thing, and we'll go do our own thing? No, no, no. In the world of business, when you wave the white flag, people go, oh, <laughs> you're surrendering. Shit, I need some investors, because, boy, I'm going to capitalize on this. You're seeing the end of the modern education system in front of you right now, like I forecast for years. Anyway. What wraps things up there. With that, let me remind you real quick one more time. Hey, if you want to come to the 10-year anniversary party, you have until COB Wednesday to sign up. Just log into the MSB. You'll find the link in the show notes there. That's what I'm going to call it, a final count. Get the number over to the restaurant people and be done with it. Um, if you already signed up for it and you're wondering whether you got in the first 50 or the second 50, odds are you got in the first 50. Uh, but I'll get in touch with everybody at the end of the week. With I might just po po post a list of people. And, you know, be like Susan B, Mark A. I think that'll probably be enough for people to know who they are and where they are online. That might be the easiest way, because if I send out 75, 85 emails, whatever it's going to be, uh, that starts tripping spam filters and stuff like that, internet-wide, and causes me grief. Uh, so, uh, in general, most of you, because we didn't hit that 100, most of you did get in on the, uh, the first group of 50. Uh, if you want to support the show... Couple ways to do that. One is become a member of the MSB. If you want to do that, just click on members to learn more on the site. Or do your online shopping through tspaz.com. Or as the little girl in the Taco Bell commercial says, why can't we have both? You can do both. But if you go to tspaz.com, 
You'll see all the products that I recommend on Amazon. And if you do your online shopping at tspaz.com, no matter what you buy, you do help us and you help the work that we do. The item of the day I have for you today is one I brought around a bunch of times. It was the first item that I ever featured as an item of the day. It goes back over two years. It's the Shard Carry 9.5 Smart Pressure Canner and Cooker. Um, as I've talked about this thing before, and it, it, I get every time I bring it up, the National Canning Foundation says you're going to die of botulism if you can in an electric cooker. That's right, maybe. Uh, but this isn't an electric cooker. It's an electric pressure canner. It has 21 safety features that make it almost impossible, if you follow the instructions, for you to can with it if it doesn't work right. It literally won't start the pressure canning uh, sequence unless it's working. It's, it's as safe as... I don't care how you get your heat. Heat is heat. It has a real pet cox including a 15-pound one for higher elevations, unlike the Power Pressure Cooker XL, which is the only other actual electric pressure canner I'm aware of that's considered safe for pressure canning, i.e. canning meats and low-acid foods. It's also better than the Instapot. It's bigger. It has all the features of the Instapot and more. It can do slow cooking. It can do hot cooking. It can do searing. It's awesome. It's about 120 bucks, and When I first started bringing this thing around, it would sell out constantly on Amazon. They're in good stock now. They're available. And I brought it around today because of a couple things. One, they're in stock. Uh, but two is that we are coming up on the time of the year where, you know, there's 5,000 green beans in your garden and you start looking for ways to can stuff. I have a huge, awesome, expensive all-American pressure canner. I mean a big, good one. I used the tar out of it for years. I probably need to barter it because I haven't used it since I bought this thing. And I can't see myself ever using it again. Even though it only does four quarts at a time, that's enough for me. That's enough for me, especially as easy as it is. You know, put four in there, push go, come back, and it's done. And, uh, you know, next time you do another four, you build up your canning uh, pantry really quick and easily that way. And usually four quarts. Even when I make a giant pot of soup or something, there's plenty of canning capacity for me anyway. Uh, check it out. It's the easiest way to can, and the pressure cooker function is awesome. My favorite way to do ribs now is in the carry pressure cooker. I take the ribs, I put them in there, I pressure cook them with whatever season I want for about 50 to 55 minutes. I take them out, I let them completely cool down and firm up. I throw them on the grill with whatever sauce I want to use. Do that for about 10 minutes so they crisp around the edges and reheat. And they come out better than just about any way I've ever made ribs in my life. Lots of other cool stuff you can do with them with tough cuts of meat, tenderizing, etc. Check it out. Shard Carry 9.5 quart smart pressure canner cooker item of the day. Kicks the ass out of the famous Instapot. Does so much more for about the same money. With that, we've wrapped up today. We have our song of the day today, and we are extending Johnny Cash Week to a Monday because we had an extra day taken out last week. I have a song from Johnny today called The Man Comes Around. This is a, a, a quite biblical song, and I'm not a biblical guy, but I like this song anyway. I just think it's a cool song. Here's what uh, Song Facts has to say about it. The title track from Johnny Cash's America 4, The Man Comes Around, This was penned by Cash a few years before the recording of the album. The idea for the song came from a dream of Cash's where he was in Buckingham Palace and the Queen said to him, Johnny Cash, you're just like a thorn tree in a whirlwind. 
Cash decided the dream was biblical and found the reference in a book of Job 38. Quote, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. End quote. An alternative earlier can be heard on the legend of Johnny Cash, which emits the spoken word intro and outro. There are numerous biblical references in the lyrics. The spoken word intro opens both the song and the album. It's taken from Revelation 6, 1 and 2, which describes John the Apostle's vision of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, each heralded by one of the four beasts, is mentioned in Revelations 4, 6 through 9, We then hear several other Revelation references as Cash sings of how the man, God, will one day come to pass judgment. The song alludes to the parable of the ten virgins from the Gospel of Matthew 25, 1-13, with the lyrics, quote, The virgins are all trimming their wicks, end quote, a reference to the virgins getting ready for the second coming of Christ. The song has been used many times on different TV shows and films, including the opening of Closing Credits, both of 2003 movie The Hunted and 2004 Dawn of the Dead remake. You know, I've been asked like sometimes when I talk about music like this, and people go, well, if you're not a believer in, in organized religion, which I'm not, uh, why do you like songs like this? This song's about reckoning. And I think if you believe in justice, you enjoy songs about reckonings. That's my take on it. I know for some of y'all it means a hell of a lot more, and I respect and appreciate that. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. There's a man going round taking names And he decides who to free and who to blame Everybody won't be treated all the same There'll be a golden ladder reaching down When the man comes around The hairs on your arm will stand up at the terror in each sip and in each sup will you partake of that last offered cup or disappear into the potter's ground when the man comes around hear the trumpets hear the pipers One hundred million angels singing Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum Voices calling, voices crying Some are born and some are dying It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come And the whirlwind is in the thorn tree The virgins are all trimming their wicks. 
the whirlwind is in the thorn tree. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Till Armageddon, no shalom, no shalom. Then the father hen will call his chickens home. The wise men will bow down before the throne. And at his feet they'll cast their golden crowns. When the man comes around, whoever is unjust, let him be unjust still. Whoever is righteous, let him be righteous still. Whoever is filthy, let him be filthy still. Listen to the words long written down. When the man comes around, hear the trumpets, hear the pipers. One hundred million angels singing. Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum. Voices calling, voices crying. Some are born and some are dying. It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come, and the whirlwind is in the thorn tree. The virgins are all trimming their wicks. The whirlwind is in the thorn tree. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. In measured a hundredweight and penny pound. Set on him was death, and hell followed with him. <laughs> 